You're listening to a message from Canby Foursquare Church in Canby, Oregon. We pray that this message will be an encouragement to you. Visit canbyfoursquare.com to learn more. Thank you so much for being here. I know that, you know, when the weather's kind of iffy, uh, sometimes it's harder to, uh, the, the road between your bed and church is a lot longer than normal, and so I appreciate you showing up this morning to share in God's Word, and I pray that the Lord will bless you even as you come here seeking Him today. Um, if you would, open up your Bibles with me this morning. We are going to be in the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, and uh, if you have a, a Bible app, you open it up there as well. Uh, Luke chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at verses 22 through 52 this morning. My sermon title this morning, just to kind of get a handle on where we're going, is uh, we're calling this The Rest of the Christmas Story Between the Birth and the Baptism of Jesus and What That Means for Us Today. If that's too long of a title for you, just you can narrow it down. What Chris said on the day after Christmas will probably still work as well. I want to just mention before we dive in here a little bit about the Gospels. And this is something that will help you in your understanding of the Bible anyway on any other passage you look at. And that is the fact that the four books that we call the Gospels should not be thought of as biographies, but rather should be thought of as portraits. The writer's intention was to write for different audiences with the intent and purpose of moving the reader into belief and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, what's the practical difference between a biography and a portrait? A biography tries to tell the whole story, as much of the story, bring as much in. A portrait is, once again, very selective in the details it adds because it is painting a picture of somebody. And so when I talk about this, this has direct application on our passage today because Luke's gospel gives us really the only glimpse we have, and it's not in all the other gospels, it's only in his gospel, it gives us the only glimpse we have of what Jesus was like between being a baby and the full-grown adult that we meet at, at his baptism. And so uh, this is once again a picture. And what's the intent of Luke? Well, Luke is showing us, if you will, that there is a continuity, that the man that we meet, who's a grown, mature adult man, ministering and, and, uh, and teaching publicly, that there is continuity with that and the boy and the young man that he was beforehand. So uh, anyway, so it's a, it's a good illustration of that. I also want to mention, just to help you along today, because our passage is 30 verses long. I mean, they're not long, long, long verses. But if you were to, if you were to take the passage that we are looking at today, and if you were to drop it off the top of a building, when it hit the pavement, it would basically break into three parts, real natural fault lines here. And so I want to uh, bring these up to you just as an outline that we'll follow this morning. First of all, we have the priestly presentation, and that's the first couple verses. Then we have the prophetic confirmation, and then finally we have the missional preparation of Jesus. So that's going to be my outline, and hopefully you can hang the thoughts on those hooks, if you will, 
uh, in your mind as we go through them today. So first of all, let's look at the first couple verses, the priestly presentation, beginning Luke 2, chapter 22. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they, that's Joseph and Mary, brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy unto the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. What do we need to know about this? Well, first of all, Luke, once again, writing to a Gentile audience, so there, there would be a group of people not familiar with the laws and the customs of the Jews, and he takes two events and he really welds them into one. The two events are the presentation and the purification. The law said that the firstborn of all animals and of all people, the firstborn son, is to be presented to the Lord in the temple. Now, if you were from a particular tribe, the tribe of Levi, your firstborn son would then serve the Lord. You present him, he would serve the Lord, and he would become part of the priesthood of Israel. If you were from a different tribe, such as like Jesus was, or any of the other 11 tribes, if you were from that tribe, your firstborn would be presented in the temple as an offering to the Lord, according to the Lord's instructions, and then would be redeemed. And the funds that you redeemed him with would then go to support the temple. And so this was a very important thing of, of obedience to the Lord that every family was to do with their firstborn. Then also uh, there was the purification. And this was an animal sacrifice for the purification of a woman after she had given birth to a child. Nothing unholy or impure about carrying a child or giving birth or whatever, but rather this was a period of time, usually between 40 days, sometimes as long as 60, if you, uh, it was where a woman was basically excused from her religious obligations. And then it, it was kind of like marking that period where then she would uh, rejoin in the practice of the Jewish religion after giving birth. So if you think of it as God was the originator of maternity leave, okay? He was, he was the one who thought of that beforehand to give women a break. Uh, what's important here? What, what do we need to learn from this? Well, let's, first of all, we learn from Joseph and Mary what? That they were obedient servants of the Lord. They showed up and they did what the Lord had asked them to do. They offered the temple at the temple their son and they complied with God's command. Second, we learn that the sacrifice would have normally been a lamb, but Joseph and Mary, the, the provisions of the law, allowed for there to be also the sacrifice of pigeons or turtle doves for someone who uh, could not afford to purchase an animal. We probably shouldn't think of, of Joseph and Mary as somebody who lived in uh, abject poverty, but rather that they were working class because Joseph was what we call a fabricator of, of things. We, popularly, we say he was a carpenter, but actually the word that's used for him in the Bible, he was a fabricator of all sorts of things. So he probably would have had a lot of pain work uh, in his occupation uh, to do. But the, the tax, if, they, if you will, the redemption tax for your firstborn son was about a week's worth of wages. And if you think about that, if you're a working family, well, think about it now. Could you 
afford to give one week of your paycheck uh, to redeem your child. You know, no, you, you can have him. Uh, you know, <laughs> I don't have to cough this money up. Uh, so probably the, the reason that they didn't do the, the more expensive sacrifice was simply their budget was constrained uh, from their station in life. But what we learned about Jesus here most certainly is that uh, God chose for him to grow up as a common person and that uh, he was probably poor, but what we say, not necessarily hungry. Okay, you know, there's a difference, isn't there? between being poor and hungry and poor and not hungry. And uh, so probably poor and not hungry. And you know, that's the experience, if you will, if you want to think about the common experience of humanity, even today in this, this day of technology and great wealth and all that, the majority of people that live on this planet today live in poverty. That, that is just a, a, a normal reality. So a, a, a experience held by a lot of people is poverty. But there's an experience that all human beings share, and that is spiritual poverty. We are not born spiritually rich. The Bible tells us we're actually born spiritually dead, and that God has to actually resurrect, if you will, our, our spirit within us. And so universally, all people are spiritually poor. Jesus did not say those words. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. For him, not just theory, lived experience in his day-to-day -day life. So, prophetic confirmation. We pick this up now in verses 25 through 40. But I do want to say, I just want to point out a couple themes that are in play here that I think <coughs> really kind of help us to understand who these people are, particularly Saint, uh, uh, Anna and, and Simeon. Israel had, has what we would call the remnant of the righteous. And we have an example of a man and a woman, both elderly. But this was something that is, is really all throughout the scripture, friends. And that is the fact that God has reserved for him not all of the whole of Israel, but those within Israel that had faith. Okay, so it is a remnant of the righteous. And really, if you look at the story of Israel through the Old Testament, you see that their journey wavers between apostasy or walking away from God and devotion. It's, it's kind of these, always these extremes, but throughout all of them, even at the low points, there is uh, a righteous remnant that's in play. And so these are the people that we're encountering is God's righteous remnant among many people who are lukewarm, not walking with God, uh, distant from God. Uh, and so these are who we're encountering here. Also, the reward of the humble. You know, we'll notice that it is the humble people, the people that know their need for God and are humble before. They humble their lives before God. They live their lives on purpose and not for their own pride and their own aggrandizement, that they are the ones who see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Uh, once again, that God meets and rewards the humble by seeing Jesus. And then finally, the renewal of the promise. Once again, another theme that we see throughout Old Testament scripture, and that is our patriarchs of the faith often were waiting against odds for God to fulfill a promise. And often that promise was fulfilled through the birth of a child. 
And these are but milestones along the way to the child of ultimate promise, which is Jesus Christ. So first of all, let's meet Simeon, and we'll pick it up in verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people. And his father and mother, Jesus' parents, marveled at what was said about him. Now, think about this. They knew the story. I mean, you know, Gabriel told him, uh, Joseph learned to name him Jesus. They knew the story. But now other people, just out of the blue, are, are recognizing, and the Lord is telling them, too, and letting them in on the story as well. And they're astonished now. And you know how it is when you know something, then somebody comes up and and says something to you, and you go, wow, they, you know, they already knew that. That is astonishing a bit, uh, where you think, well, this is just going to be my story, not anybody else's. So Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed a blessing and then a reality check with that blessing right there so Simeon is in the spirit he's an elderly and righteous man he's moved by the Holy Spirit that day to go down to the temple and Simeon is given a revelation as to the significance of this little family that's wandering into the precincts of the temple to to present their son and he's given a, what we would call a prophetic utterance. And that is, and this is what we want to dial into, he says, I have seen the salvation God has prepared. It's not of laws and of religious rituals. It is not of animal sacrifice. It is not of having special knowledge or reaching spiritual achievements, but rather the salvation that the Lord has prepared is this child, this child of promise, the boy Jesus, a child of humble circumstances, and for all the world who thinks he's just an ordinary person, and yet we are told that he is God in the flesh. In retrospect, we can see that the Old Testament, uh, we can see that Jesus clearly fulfills what was prophesied about who the Messiah would be. But in real time, Jesus did not live up to the expectations of what Israel was looking for in their Messiah. They were looking for somebody who was going to be a king, a powerful king, a warrior king, and that he was going to renew their national fortunes. And Jesus didn't live up to those things. 
And I want to point out, because, you know, it's so easy for us today, you know, kind of cluck our tongues at Israel. How could they be so blind? It says in Isaiah this or, you know, the Old Testament prophets and all that. The abiding sin of most of us is the fact that things don't live up to our expectations. And therefore, we either reject them or we're disappointed by them. And we miss what God puts right in front of us because the real does not live up to the ideal in our lives. It's a a besetting sin for almost all humanity. And when we engage in that, when we forget that God is working in our individual lives and he is orchestrating things for our good and even sometimes when they don't feel like good, we need to look for what is the good that God is doing in our lives. What is before me? Because we don't want to miss that because the real didn't live up to the ideal. Okay? The theme of light and glory, of course, I also want to bring that up because that is a theme that's brought up in uh, Isaiah, oftentimes, a light to the Gentiles and the glory to Israel. What he's talking about here is that, first of all, that this will be Israel's honor that the world Messiah would come from their kin, their family, but that the light is the light of the world that's living in darkness a light of the Gentiles. And Luke wants us to know, he wants us to know that we have a universal Savior, not just of the Jews, but of all nations, of all people. Why? Because all people need to be redeemed. All people need the light of God in their life. And Jesus is that light bearer for us. And then I want to also have us focus in, I think we have a slide here on that one, on 1 Peter 2, 6, 8. It really, to me, sums up what Simeon is saying to Mary, because he's saying this this boy is going to be for the rising and falling of many in Israel. And I, I love the words that Peter uses. He he quotes once again out of Isaiah. He says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. You can build a building. You can build your life on a cornerstone. That was how you started. The rows of bricks would become straight off the cornerstone. But there was another kind of stone that they talked about in the Bible is called the scandalon or the stumbling block. And it's the same idea. It's a stone where people keep, it's out of place. People keep tripping and falling flat on their face about that. And so Peter is likening the two. One, you can build your life on through belief. But if you stumble in unbelief about Jesus, then Jesus becomes that trip up, you know, fall flat on your face thing, okay? So going back to the, the word of prophecy, many believe, many do not believe. And I would say this, that once again, anyone, uh, you know, anyone who thinks that they're neutral about Jesus obviously doesn't know who he claimed to be or has never heard anything he taught because Jesus does not invite a neutral response. He invites either belief or unbelief, but nothing in the middle there. And if you think there is a middle, you need to go back and, and, and read what he says because Jesus is very specific you're either with me or you're against me. You're not with me 
or, hey, you know, I'm okay, I'll hang around with you, or whatever, or I'm, I'm not really a friend, but we're an acquaintance. He doesn't invite that kind of response from any of us. He's either a stumbling block, or he's a cornerstone in which to build our lives. Then we move on, and we meet the second person of this righteous remnant, the prophetess Anna, who, in, we pick it up in verse 36, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher, she was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. And she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. Probably left the temple, didn't live there, but it's kind of like a saying, an you know, exaggeration, like she was there anytime the doors were open, basically. And coming up at the very hour, the same hour as Simeon encounters the couple, she began to give thanks to God and speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Once again, God's timing, bringing her in there just at the right moment so she would also know the significance that the Messiah had come and this, this baby was the Messiah. Uh, Anna is the Greek version of the name Hannah. And I think we'd be wise to bring together do you remember the story in, in 1 Samuel about Hannah, where she was a faithful Israelite, and she was desolate. She, she was infertile, and she desperately wanted children, and she came to the temple, and she prayed for the promised child. And then eventually, the Lord blessed her, and she brought that promised child into the temple and dedicated him. And so here we have this similar incident where now we have a woman who is coming into the temple, Anna now, uh, but also in the desolation of her widowhood. And she is praying for the Messiah, and God makes sure that she sees it. So once again, in her honoring the Lord with her widowhood and, and serving him in this unique way of prayer and fasting constantly in the temple, that the Lord blesses her, and the humble gets to see who the Lord is. Verse 39. And when they had performed everything... According to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. So we hear a little bit about Jesus' childhood here. Nazareth, Nazareth was God's chosen location for Jesus to grow up. And I think this is a fascinating thing because Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And Jesus is a descendant of David. You'll remember that Bethlehem was the city of David, okay? And that, that the reason Joseph went there for the census where Jesus was born there was because of the fact that that was where his tribe was from and that was where his lineage was from and that Joseph and Mary both actually share a lineage uh, to David. And yet, Jesus was, that was not in God's plan for Jesus to grow up in Bethlehem. It would have been an ideal location, and I would imagine if you guys were Jesus' parents and you knew of his special destiny, that you would actually uh, arrange for him maybe to grow up there because of the fact that it is, first of all, connected with the Messiah through David, but then also because of its proximity to Jerusalem and the temple. And if we have a, a spiritual leader having that close proximity and the best of teaching and being engaged in that regularly would be a logical advantage that you'd want to uh, give your son or daughter if, if they were that appointed person. 
And yet God's appointed place for Jesus was actually not with those advantages, but was rather what we call kind of disadvantaged. He was in a more rural area. It was definitely more Gentile than it was Jewish. And it was, it was further away from the temple. It was only 65 miles, but when you don't have cars and you walk everywhere, 65 miles is, is a nice little hike there. And he grew up apart from that, and he, he, he grew outside of the religious establishment of his day. But it was a place of safety and a place of retirement until his very public ministry would begin. But also that Jesus was raised uh, in a family, and he wasn't raised like a lone prophet or a religious hermit. He learned what it was like as we learn to live in families as well that are made up of men and women. He learned human nature. He learned about relationships. And Jesus was prepared rather than by theological training so much, he was prepared by becoming a keen observer of ordinary life. And this is certainly seen in his teaching where he's able to really see God and eternity in the day-to-day -day existence of man. And you see it witnessed in his teaching all the time. Verse 41, now we transition to the different phase, and that is the missional preparation of Jesus. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. By the way, that's super, super, uh, the word is, is meaning super high anxiety, like they were in a complete panic about, about where Jesus was. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Very interesting. Only words we have of Jesus prior to his public ministry. Only words. I must be in my father's house. And they, they didn't understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. So Joseph and Mary will remember that they are they're devout and they regularly are attending the Passover. This was actually a commandment for every man of the house had to go to Passover. The family did not always have to attend, but it was a rite of passage that the man was required to attend these festivals at least on behalf of his family. And yet we see Joseph and Mary both participating together. They're both devout. They're both dedicated. They're both obedient to the Lord. But then we also see them wisely preparing their son 
for his part in being a man of the Spirit. And that would be preparing him for his future responsibilities. That's what good parents do, by the way, is you don't spring it on your kids when they're all grown up. Hey, you need to give your life to the Lord. You need to belong to him. That's something that you train all along the way. It is, it is a preparation that needs to begin early so that it becomes a natural part of people's lives uh, when they get to the age of adulthood and have that responsibility before God. Now, how Joseph and Mary lost track of Jesus is pretty easy to understand if you understand the custom of people traveled to the Passover feast from the various villages all over Israel, and they would travel in, in if you will, companies and groups for safety reasons. There was all sorts of robbers along the highway, and, and anything could happen. And so what they did was they would have the women with small children at the very front of the company, and then they'd have boys and teens in the middle, and then the men would kind of bring up the rear. And that kept the pace at a pace that the most vulnerable would be able to walk at the slow pace, and they wouldn't pass them up and leave them unprotected. And so you wouldn't really expect, uh, Joseph and Mary probably logically would not expect to see Jesus all day until evening when they, when they camped. And so right away they noticed after the first day uh, that, that he's gone there. Probably Jesus never even left Jerusalem and wandered back, but when he, he wandered back to the temple before they even, they even left town there. And nothing really extraordinary about Jesus sitting among the teachers of the temple. Uh, that's what happened at the temple. Teachers were there. Jesus, when he became a full-grown adult and was ministering, he was often found teaching at the temple. It was a place of religious instruction. And so Jesus is is there and he's participating and it would have been a natural thing even for a young person to sit in and listen but what is obviously very uh, uh, insightful for us is the fact that we see that even the teachers were astounded at the insights that he had about God's word the insights he had about the the doctrine and the law and what its meaning was and that also that Jesus, in the, in, this is the other piece of insight, is you see that even at this age, you see in young, young, young pre-adulthood that he has a sense of his unique relationship to God, the Father. That I must be in my Father's house, the temple, as opposed to, you know, previously he probably would have looked at Joseph and Mary, these are my parents, but you see that actually, no, he did have an awareness of his unique relationship to God the Father and that his parents were more of a caretaking uh, age uh, or in a caretaking role. Unlike Samuel the prophet who's left at the temple, Jesus actually followed his parents home and, uh, as, and, and it says he was submitted to them. He honored his mother and father. What's probably not said here, which is just as important, and that is that that. Jesus was once again not trained in rabbinical law, but was trained in his surroundings and his relationships. This would be amply illustrated by his later teaching, in which God and the true meaning of scriptures were seen always in the ordinary circumstances of life. But why is that? Why would that be? Because God is engaged, actively engaged, in the ordinary experiences of your life. This is his world, and he created it to work in a certain way. And it 
it is to serve him in all of the circumstances of our lives. If worshiping God on Sundays is all that you do, and then tomorrow the real, the real work of your week begins, you have totally missed the, the point of the religion of Jesus. The religion of Jesus applies just as much to what happens here today as happens when you go home and you wash the dishes that are waiting in your sink from yesterday, as you change the poopy diaper of your baby, as you discipline your kids, as you hop in your car and go to commute to work tomorrow. It applies to all those things. God is in the daily, daily, ordinary things of our lives. The bookend of the passage, though, it says, Luke tells us Jesus increased. That's the idea of cutting one's way forward. It's the idea of harvesting, if you will. There's a picture of, of people harvesting a wheat field, and as they progress, what happens? More of the wheat is cut down, right? And so it's saying he is increasing, he's growing, he's, the, the, the things that are behind him have, have uh, you know, that he is moving his way forward in life mentally, physically, and spiritually. He grows up what we would consider a normal and yet an extraordinary human being. And so this is the picture we have of him before the next time we meet him in which he is baptized and then moves into his public ministry as a mature man. Let me just close here with a few key takeaways for all of us out of this passage. First of all, the choreography of God. Do you see the simple obedience coming together with the providence of God here? Joseph and Mary are devout. They are reliable folks doing what God expected. Simeon, once again, led by the Spirit in that day and place to go to the temple. Anna, living a life of devotion to God instead of being desolate in her widowhood. She's present there. And that God works in these simple acts of obedience, people doing the next right thing, the, the thing that the Lord puts in front of them. It's like an old AG pastor friend of mine says, you know, showing up gives God something to work with. And that's what they're doing. It's simple obedience, meeting providence, but then extraordinary things happen. And I just want us to not miss that. Doing and letting God nudge you in your day-to-day -day life, in what you're doing, being keenly aware of his working in your life and being obedience to those and bringing obedience to those things gives God something to work with in your life for his glory. Let's not miss that, the choreography of, of God. Second of all, that there is the, the bringing together of humility and honor about the human existence. We're given the knowledge that Jesus grew up as a normal human being. But there was a time when he was in his mother's womb. There was a time when he was a baby. There was a time when Jesus was a toddler and learned how to walk. There was a time when he was a child. There was a time when Jesus was a teenager. There was a time when Jesus was a young man. There was a time when Jesus was a mature man. Now we think, well, he didn't look to be an old man, but you were in old adulthood once you were over the age of 30 when Jesus started, okay? So you were on the downhill slide. Have you ever noticed, guys, how that changes the older you get? You know, it's like, it used to be, I remember, like, you know, my parents, when they turned 40, had their over-the-ill party, and now it's 50, and now, you know, they're saying, well, you know, 60's the new 40, and I'm like, well, that means 80's the new 60? I mean, how does this work? It, it's, it's, Jesus lived to be a mature man, 
And that's the point for us, is that all phases of adulthood are important in the economy of God, and they're important for you. And they're important for us to support in our life. The heart of God is for the child. The heart of God is for the, the vulnerable and the helpless adult. The heart of God is for the teenager learning their responsibilities. The heart of God is, is for being available to serve him in your vocation, your calling for him. And God does not have one calling. It's not always a religious calling. There are many needs in this world. And it gives all of us a place where we can serve God. But all these things, Jesus honored by going through them. And also it shows that, that your life matters, my life matters. A human life matters. Humans, you know, are not like animals. Animals, some animals can walk in the first few hours of life. They, you know, their parents kick them out of the nest when they're one year old. I mean, fantastic, right? Uh, if you have teenagers, anyway. Uh, but the point, you know, the point being is, is that, uh, you know, St. Augustine, he, sa he said this. He said that, that God's plan for us is to be raised in a family because human beings are social. And that we have to learn, as being those uh, social beings, we have to learn sympathy and empathy and affection for one another. And so we are trained up over a long period of time in a social environment to be who God wants us to be. But I just want to point that out to us, that, that Christ's humanity honors all, um, all portions of life, even, I would say, even into, you know, advanced agedness, is just leaving that door open in our life till God calls us home. Like Simeon, you know, he was like, well, now, Lord, I know you're calling me home because you've brought me to this point and you promised that I would see the, the Christ child there. But just being available to that Lord until he dismisses us, that we don't just think of, you know, well, I'm done, I'm used up or whatever. God is using all phases of life because he designed it and it honors him. And then finally, I just want to point out about the salvation and consolation that we see here. Remember, he said, Lord, I've seen the consolation. I was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And now my eyes have seen the salvation which you have prepared. And friends, can I just say, I want you to step back for just a second about this. What part of salvation did Simeon have to work through what part of salvation did Anna have to achieve what part of salvation did Joseph and Mary have to do or none the salvation that God prepares is not a salvation that we create it isn't something that we achieve it isn't something that we can do for ourselves that we can pull ourselves up by the bootstraps for. As a matter of fact, we really kind of come to the point in this story where we go, I see what you've done for me, Lord, and I'm glad about it and I want it. And I just want to point that out to you, that there's the, the consolation is that we are saved, that salvation has been provided for us through Jesus. And it isn't about how awesome we are or how good we have reformed our lives and what wonderful people we are and how awesome we serve the community. It's because God loves you, friend. It's because God provided a Savior for you. 
And what does God want out of us? He wants us to receive that gift that he gives us. You know, that invitation went out to me many, many years ago. And it came at a point where, honestly, I needed a Savior. And I'm glad that I'm glad that I reached out and accepted Jesus Christ. And friends, I want to invite you to do that. If you have not done that in your life, I want to invite you to just lay hold and just say, Lord, I want the salvation that you provided for me, that I want Jesus Christ to be my Lord and my Savior. And let me just put it out there again to you today. Perhaps you've been walking with the Lord for a long time or you've taken a vacation from Jesus. Uh, I know a lot of people do that in their lives and maybe you feel far from the Lord and some reason you're here at church today. I just want you to realize that once again, it's not about you getting your life all fixed up again so I can come back to Jesus. Jesus has been your savior yesterday and today and tomorrow. He's been your savior this whole time. I just invite you to come back to him. Just give your heart back to him. Maybe this makes Zippo sense to you and this is like something in midair and you do not understand anything of what I'm talking about really, but I just invite you to do one thing today and that is God, would you turn my heart and help me to see, help me to see the right thing. Would you guys pray with me today and we'll close here. Heavenly Father, we thank you that like Simeon, we can stand back and in in joy and awe and reverence we can see that you have taken care of it all it's been by your grace it's been by your creative purposes it has been by your generosity that you have made a way for us for the renewal really of nothing less than our lives nothing less than this very earth the renewal of all things that that which was lost in the fall is on its way to be restored because of the Savior that you gave us. Lord, help us to not miss that. Help us to not chase after things that are uh, indeed what we would consider to be ideal and then miss out on the real, the real of our need, the real of our Savior, the real of Jesus. Help us, Father. Help us to appreciate you. And even in the year ahead, Lord God, help us to grow closer and closer and to see Jesus in all things in our lives. And we pray all these things in his glorious and loving name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Please let us know if you have questions or would like us to pray with you. You can contact the church office most weekdays at 503-266-4444 and anytime through canbyfoursquare.com.